Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. It's getting to be springtime. We're getting there. And we've gotten to the spot in Luke that I'm going to call this passage we're looking at today, I'm going to call it the beating heart of the Gospel of Luke. This is the heartbeat of the teaching of Jesus. You know, we we launched out of Luke chapter 3 where Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And now we get to this spot in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, where Jesus begins to talk about and describe the love, the love that his followers will have. If you flip your bulletin over on the back, I think I put it in the best words I could. I read it this morning and I thought, well, I can't say it much better. It's the holy grail of Christianity. It's the ultimate destination of a disciple of Jesus and the absolute heartbeat of the kingdom. Love so strong and so pure that it allows us to even love those who hate us, love those who mistreat us and take from us. It's a love that causes us to actually love our enemies. We get even with our enemies. We get back at them. We work to thwart them and to eradicate them from our lives they hit us, we hit them back harder. I mean, that's the American ethic. It's retribution and revenge. Stand up for yourself. But Jesus lived and taught a different way. His way frees us from revenge, frees us from hate and from force. It seems weak to us, even wimpy on its face, but in fact, it's the greatest power on earth. Love so strong that it even loves enemies. So that's today. That's what we're talking about today. And the title of this message is Life in the Kingdom. The rule of the king brings freedom. The rule of the king. When I say rule, I don't mean like the reign of the king, but I mean the rule, the, the way that the king lives and the way that the king encourages us to live. It's in a way that actually brings freedom. It doesn't bring bondage, but it brings freedom as all of God's law always has. The law of God brings freedom, not bondage. Uh, there, was a, um, there was a time in the 70s when the administration in charge uh, was uh, apparently had an enemies list. Had an enemies list. Uh, a list of all of the people and organizations that, were, that wanted to do it harm. And the, uh, the administration basically passed this list out to its members, and these are the people that you want to hold at arm's length and try to keep them from hurting us, and maybe even worse on this enemies list. But the message is, today, as it was then, is when you get hit, you hit back and you hit harder. My dad always used to tell me that if, if there were bullies, you just pick out the biggest one, and you, bam, you give it to them, you put them down. And then all the rest of them will be afraid of you. They won't bother you. I never had it in me to do that. You know, I've never actually, this is a true confession now. In my life, I've never swung my fist purposely to inflict harm on somebody else. I I mean, I've wanted to, like dozens of, maybe hundreds of times. I I just don't have it in me. If I ever hit somebody and they fell down, I feel so bad. I'd be like, here, let me help you up. Are you hurt? Are you hurt? Can I help you? That, well, in a, but in our day, that's what we're taught, though. We're taught to hit back. We're taught to not take it from anybody, because if we do, they'll just walk all over us. 
that we have to defend ourselves. And that self-defense is a human right, a constitutional right. We have to be able to defend ourselves. And we shouldn't get in trouble if we commit violence in the act of defending ourselves. So my question is, who's after you today? Do you have a bully? Do you have somebody who's against you? Somebody you'd call your enemy? Maybe a, a competitor in business or, or a neighbor or a relative or a coworker that you might think is your enemy? And I wonder, who would make the cut if you put together your enemies list? If you had an enemies list, who would be on that list? Who would be the number one person that you were supposed to, as we're going to find out, love. Because Jesus taught his followers to take care, how to take care of their enemies, how to deal with them. And that's today's passage. So beginning in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, and you remember he, Luke records, he looks around, he looks at everybody, and then he says, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Uh, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And even as I read that, I I can hear in some of your minds, you're like, blah, 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 blah. We've heard this before. We've heard this before. We've heard this so many times. It is so like not how the real world works. So you you got the real world, and then you've got the Bible, and I live in the real world, and the Bible lives in some other world. Because you've got certain passages in the Bible that when we read them, we just say, yeah, that's good, it sounds real good, but it's really not how people can live. It's not how I can live. This is one of those passages. So again, we go back to that passage. Uh, to you who are listening, love your enemies. They're my enemies. I'm not going to love them, Right? That's why they're my enemies. Do good to those who hate you. I remember waking up one morning in the fall of 2013, and my prayer to God was, God, help me to be alive at the end of this day to lay my head back down on this pillow. I was so stressed. I was so stressed out. I literally was afraid I just might just not make it to the end of the day because I had enemies that were causing so much trouble and so many problems. And that day was going to be a day when we were going to engage and there was going to be some meetings, there was going to be conflict and confrontation, and it could spill over into other people's lives. And, and I knew that there were already, there were some adults and some teenagers and kids that were getting hurt and wounded by this person and these people. And that morning I was just so stressed out. The last thing I was thinking about was doing good to the people who thought so ill of me. I mean, I knew they were wrong. I mean, it was just me. How could they think those things of me? But they did. They did. And the the last thing I was thinking was to do good to them. The last thing I was thinking at that time was to love them. I just wanted to withstand them and just kind of get through it. So bless those who curse you. I wasn't thinking about doing good or loving or blessing them. And I'm not sure that day that I prayed for those who mistreated me. But Jesus says that. Pray. Pray for those. When you say, oh, I'm praying. (laughs) I'm praying all right. You know, I'm praying that that something happens to them. 
But I don't think that was Jesus' thought at all. He wasn't thinking that. He was actually, actually on the cross, didn't he pray for those, right? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's so interesting. As we read some, through some of these passages in Luke, and you think about Jesus' life, he actually did this stuff. He actually did the stuff that he's telling us to do. And the, isn't that the, the burden of every teacher or, or preacher or proclaimer of God's Word, that we're actually supposed to do the stuff that we tell other people to do? And as disciples, that we're actually supposed to live out the teachings of our Master, the teachings of Jesus, And it's hard to do. He goes on to say in verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. This is, by the way, this is also in Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7. These verses are found. And he says this again. He says it in just a different way, but very similarly there. Turn to them the other also. And the idea here is don't stop being vulnerable. Just because you get hurt, don't pull yourself back and say, no, I'm not going to have anything to, I'm going to set up my defenses. Nobody is going to hurt me again. He's saying, don't do that. In other words, if we're going to love, we open ourselves up to trouble. Because the moment we give our love to somebody, we've given them an opportunity to hurt us. Now we're talking about good people. We're talking about our family, our close friends. Certainly, if we give love to our enemies, we give them more of an opportunity to hurt us, to harm us. Jesus is saying, remain vulnerable. If someone slaps you on one cheek, don't hide your other cheek from them. Don't make sure that they're not ever going to slap you again. Otherwise, you'd never be able to practice 70 times 7 of forgiveness, right? If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. And then there's the golden rule. This part sounds so easy. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Oh, I can do that because I just want them to do nice things to me. So I can do nice things to others. But can we love our enemies? Can we do to others when they're not doing what we want them to do unto us? Because often we'll say, well, I'm justified in my bad actions toward them and my bad thoughts toward them. I'm justified because what they're doing is just not right. It's just not right. In fact, uh, I know somebody who uses this term a lot. It's not right. It's not right. And when they, when they declare uh, and judge that it's not right, then they are open in that person's fair game for them to do whatever that they believe that person deserves from them. Because it's not right. It's not right what they did. It's not right what they did. So I'm, and fill in the blank. But you know, it's, that's not it. In fact, uh, I put it on the slide, it, this is complex. And it is complex because there are all the other teachings of the New Testament. There are the teachings of Proverbs and teaching in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, how to live our lives and how to conduct our relationships. And all those things still stand. But Jesus is putting the heart, the heart of all the scriptures right here in this teaching, saying that we're to love our neighbors and this love our enemies. This should be the default response, not the last resort. It shouldn't be the last resort. This should be, we default to loving our enemies, not, okay, let me see, I'm not going to love them because 
you figure out all these things, well, they did this, or, or, or this other verse applies, or this. It should be the first default and not the last resort. Oh, I guess I have to love them. And yes, you know what? Loving your enemies does not make sense. It, it really, it doesn't make any sense to love your enemies. I have a story for you, and let's see where it is. Here it is. An Armenian nurse had been held captive along with her brother by the Turks. Her brother was slain by a Turkish soldier before her eyes. Somehow she escaped and later became a nurse in a military hospital. So her brother is dead, killed by a Turkish officer. One day she was stunned to find that the same man who had killed her brother had been captured and brought wounded to the hospital where she worked. She recognized him and something within her cried out, vengeance! But a stronger voice called for her to love. So she nursed the man back to health. Finally, the recuperating soldier asked her, why didn't you let me die? Her answer was, I'm a follower of him who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Impressed with her answer, the young soldier replied, I never heard such words before. Tell me more. I want this kind of religion. That's not true. Who made up that story? Right? That's, I mean, that's what, that's what we think. When we hear those, those syrupy, sappy stories like that, we say to ourselves, that's not true. That, that was just made up to try to illustrate this teaching. I did some research on things that would illustrate this love your enemies. There are so many stories out there about people who loved their enemies and then how the enemies' hearts were changed because they never experienced that kind of love before. Story after story after YouTube video after YouTube video. I, I wanted to show a couple, but some of them, the best ones, you really can't show in church. But they're amazing stories about people who decided to love their enemies instead of get even, and it changed their heart and it changed the enemy's heart as well. Well, back to the passage, if someone slaps you on the cheek, you know, turn the other also. Let's stay vulnerable, stay engaged with people, practice forgiveness, and in so practicing that forgiveness, we're actually being like Jesus. Verse 32 of Luke 6. And here's this I hate to even read this, but it's 32, 33, and 34. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. I'm struck by how they repeat all of the wording in every phrase. Luke repeats it. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. In other words, to, to be good to the people who are good to you, you don't get any credit for that. That's like, that's like exercising downhill. That's, I mean, you don't get credit for that. It doesn't burn any calories. It doesn't really do anything. But to love your enemies, now that's something different. I have another story. In his book, The Grace of Giving, Stephen Alford tells of a Christian pastor during the American Revolution, Peter Miller, who lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. How many of you have ever been to Ephrata, Pennsylvania? Anybody in here? Oh, really? 
I've driven through. Okay, anyway, uh, so I know it's a real place. And enjoyed, this guy enjoyed the friendship of George Washington back in the day. So in Ephrata also lived Michael Wittman, an evil-minded sort who did all he could to oppose and humiliate Peter Miller, the pastor. One day, evil Michael Wittman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Pastor Peter Miller traveled 70 miles by foot to Philadelphia to plead for the life of the traitor. No, Peter, President Washington said, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. My friend, exclaimed the old preacher, he's the bitterest enemy I have. What? cried Washington. You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. I will grant you the pardon. And he did. Peter Miller took Michael Wittman back home to Ephrata, no longer an enemy, but a friend. That's not true. Who made that up? That's never going to happen. Like that would ever happen. Somebody would actually love their enemy. Well, Luke chapter 6, verse 35. So, um, if you love those who love you, if you're good to those who are good to you, if you lend to those you expect repayment from, you don't get any credit for it, verse 35, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great. Oh, really? Your reward will be great. Oh, maybe in heaven, right? In heaven. You go back into Matthew, and in this passage, for great is your reward in heaven. Oh, well then, but not here. But I wonder if, let's say it is only heaven. We minimize. Do we not downplay the reward of heaven and the reward in heaven? Like it's nothing? Like it's so far off it's not even to be considered? That's probably something we should think about. Maybe a reward in heaven is going to be great. And maybe the reward, since here heaven isn't included, it just says, then your reward will be great. Maybe the reward is great here too. Maybe the reward is great starting when we do the good deed. Maybe the reward is great. And you will be children of the Most High. You will be children of the Most High if you love your enemies, if you do good to them, if you lend to them without expecting to get anything back. You'll be, you'll be your father's kids. Because that's what God did. That's what God did for us. That's what Jesus did, right, when he comes to the cross. I mean, these are kind of like Sunday school lessons, but it's hard to then put it into practice. But if we would, he's saying, then you're, you're your dad's kids. Yesterday, my wife and I were watching our oldest by three weeks grandson, Knox. Now, I'm mentioning Knox now because he's my son Joel's son. And Joel says every time he comes here and he brings Knox, all of you folks walk up to him and say, oh, is this little baby Cash? Because the other one is Cash with a K. So Joel says it must be the only one I talk about is Cash from the, whenever I'm in church. So this is Knox, my grandson Knox. And Joel was wanting to go out with a buddy who showed up in town, and they were going to go out, and so Debbie and I went over to watch Knox. But when we got there, Travis, his old high school buddy, which 
me and Travis and Joel, I mean, this is Joel's friends, we have memories going back, you know, 12, 15 years. And I walked in, Travis, hey, Travis, oh, hi, Paul. And I give him a hug. And, and he was talking about Knox, saying how Knox is just this perfect combination of Samantha and Joel. And then he said to me, and you know what? He makes some faces and he looks just like you. And I thought, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. This kid is so good looking. He looks just like me. But the truth is he looks like his dad, and his dad looks like me because his dad's my son. But you can tell when you look at these boys, you can tell they're my boys for better or for worse. You can tell. When I look at your kids, I can tell they're your kids. And the question is, do people know that you're a child of the Most High because you love your enemies? Because you do good to those who hate you? Because you give to people without expecting anything back? This is what makes you look like your dad. This is what helps people to know What kind of love is this? Who loves like this? And I wonder, are there any churches in town where the town folk say, wow, those people, like, they love like weird, like crazy love. Man, I I hope there are. I hope ours could be one of them. I hope they could all be that kind of a place where people say, man, the people in that church, they love they really, they're a little weird, but they really love. They really love because that would be in itself weird. So you will be children of the Most High. Why? Because, because the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. He is? That doesn't sound like the God of the Old Testament I learned about in Sunday school. He's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Jesus decides that given all of the information in the Scriptures and his understanding of the Father, he can declare that you sum it all up and the verdict is that God is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. He's kind to them. And if you're like him, you'll also be. If I'm like him, I'll also be kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And he says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. That's how he wants us to be. And this is really interesting because God, God never tells us to do things or be things that he isn't or doesn't do. He always just wants us to be like him. He wants us to be like Jesus. He's conforming us, right, into his image. And one of the parts that he is like is that he loves his enemies and he's good to those who despise him. And he's kind to the ungrateful, and to the wicked. Which leads right into this, these last two verses that say, therefore, you know, don't don't judge. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. I don't have to judge. That frees me. That's freedom. When we don't have to judge each other, we're, we're freed from judgment. We're freed from having to measure people by whatever standards or scales we want to measure them by. We're freed from that. We're free just to love them because we don't have to judge them. We don't have to condemn them. We can just forgive them. And then we can give because it'll be given back to us. And again, here's part of that, great is your reward. He says, and he uses terms here 
that's used in the marketplace of the day. A good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. And I told the first service crowd, this is, this is what you want them to do with the fries at McDonald's. You want them to do this. You want them to put it in and just shake it, let them settle, and then put some more in and shake it, and, let it, and then just have it overflowing, and it's, they're just dripping off as they set them in your bag and put them out the window to you. Instead, you pull them out, and it's like, where's the beef, right? You know, is this, this far from the top, and, you, you, you know, they're, they're cold. Um, this is a good measure uh, running over, will be poured into your lap. Jesus says that w- how you treat others It'll be, it'll be given back to you. It'll be given back to you in spades, so to speak, even more so. For with the measure you used, it will be measured to you. So the rule of the king here, the rule of the king is merciful love. This is the standard, merciful love. A love that it, it's so merciful, it doesn't give the person what they deserve. In fact, it gives them what they don't deserve, and that's love, that's kindness, that's doing good and lending and forgiving. A love that's irrational, unjustified. There's no justification for it. A love that's inexplicable, that you you can't explain it. It's amazing. And again, would anybody describe the people at Community Heights like that? I, I so believe in the church that I just want to ask the question, and I'll put it to my last church. Would anybody in Orange City describe Dover Church like that? And if not, I'm like, why? What keeps us from loving with abandon? What keeps us from giving without expecting repayment? What keeps us from forgiving? What keeps us from that? I think the greatest world evangelization strategy known to humanity is just this. It's merciful love. It's the, this is what will draw people to Jesus. This is what will draw people to him. Not fancy slogans and all kinds of stuff. Not marketing gimmicks and, and schemes. It's love. Love will draw people to Jesus. This guy that I've been reading, Daryl Bach, he's written a commentary on Luke. He wrote, the disciples' love for others should be extraordinary in comparison to the way people usually love. So I asked the question, then, then why? Why should we love our enemies? As I read this, I thought, okay, why should we love our enemies? I came up with three reasons. Number one, because Jesus did. Because he did. He loved us. He saved us. And we turn around and we should love others. So we love our enemies because Jesus is only asking us to do what he himself did. And secondly, because love is God's greatest power. There isn't anything more powerful that we can use than loving our enemies. There's no arsenal more powerful than love. God saved the world through love. And there's some, our culture, our culture just, just teaches us that it can't, it can't quite be right. That's really not enough. At least you can't do that all the time. Love isn't always 
it. But what if it was? Listen to this story. This is my last story. This is the uh, under the it can't be true column. A rich man named Proculus had hundreds of slaves. The slave named Paulus was so trustworthy that Proculus made him the steward over his whole household. So one day, Proculus took Paulus with him, and they went to the slave market to buy some new workers. Before the bargaining began, they examined the men to see if they were strong and healthy. Obviously, another day. Among the slaves stood a weak old man, and Paulus urged his owner to buy this weak old slave. Proculus answered, he's not good for anything. Go ahead, Paulus insisted, buy him. He's cheap, and I promise you that the work in your household will get done even better than it was before. So Proculus agreed and purchased the elderly slave, and Paulus made good on his word. The work went better than ever, but Proculus observed that Paulus was now serving two men. The old slave did no work at all, while Paulus tended to him, gave him the best food, and made him rest. Proculus was curious, so he confronted Paulus. Who is this slave? You know I value you. I respect you. I don't don't mind you protecting this old man, but tell me who he is. Is he your father who has fallen into slavery? Paulus answered, it is someone to whom I owe more than to my father. Your teacher, then. No, somebody to whom I owe even more. Who then? Who then is this old slave? He's my enemy. Your enemy? Yeah, he's the man who killed my father and sold us children as slaves. Proculus stood speechless. As for me, said Paulus, I'm a disciple of Christ who has taught us to love our enemies and to return evil with good. That's not true. Like that really happened. What if it did? What if that guy really saw him? And what if he really thought, here's an opportunity I have to do the hardest thing that my master is calling me to do is to love my enemy. I'll get him to buy him. And then I'll take care of him. I'll take care of the man who killed my father and sold us kids into slavery. That will show my love for Jesus. Who is the old man in your life? Who's the person in my life and in your life that we could say, if we bless them in ways that they, had, they don't deserve, it's not justified, it's irrational. How could we show love for somebody who hates us, who's our enemy? Well, God's love is the greatest power. Number three, why? Why should we love our enemies? Because love frees us to live an abundant life. Love frees us from hate. It frees us from bitterness. It frees us from revenge and retribution. And it frees us to love and to give and to lend and to serve and to bless. It frees us from all the stuff that makes us sick. And it frees us to all the stuff that gives us life and that blesses us. Love frees us to live an abundant life. Now, there's a P.S. to this whole message. True, merciful love will not make sense. 
Don't even try to make any sense of it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that a God, a man Jesus, who created people, would let himself be thrown around by people. Oh, how much more powerful was he than them? How much more infinite? And he just let himself be tossed around, nailed to a cross, and spit on and beaten. And he got to the end of his teaching ministry, and who was there? A Roman centurion who says, in the, in the voice of John Wayne, truly this man was the Son of God. You know, not a very helpful ending, Jesus. If he purchased life for us and paid for the sins of the world, what could we do if we, like him, loved our enemies? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this teaching from your word. It's a hard teaching for us. It doesn't make any sense to us, and it is very difficult. God, I'm afraid that we've heard this over and over throughout the years, and it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to give, help me, Lord, to give some thought to this, Who in my life would be the person that causes me the most pain, the most grief, the most angst, costs me the most money perhaps, the one who's hurt others around me, has damaged maybe my reputation, that person who is my avowed enemy. God, how could I bless them? How could I love them? How could I forgive them? How could I give to them when I know I'm going to get nothing good back? Lord, this could be the heartbeat of your teaching. This could be the heartbeat of the body of Christ, of the church, that we would have a love so strong for you that it would drive us to love our neighbor and then even to the point of loving our enemies. That would be true love. God, I pray that Community Heights family would be the type of people who would love their enemies because then everyone would know that we're your children. So help us, Lord. In your son's name, amen.